Welcome back to the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we focus on the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the ego of everyone else at the table. And I'm one of your hosts, DM Neil, aka Joke Maniac. And I am DM Mitch, and we welcome you to another show. Yes, part two, if you will. For this one, we will be having the top tens, and hopefully we can get some great inspiration your way and or something that inspires art because like i said last time food mage got art so hopefully we have an idea strong enough to get art (laughs) today's going to be a little bit different than our normal top tens jim mcclure is going to start off and give us his top 10 first because he's bringing you his top 10 ways for you to write a successful plot for your role-playing game and then we will jump into me and neil and we'll give you our top 10 adventure hooks encounter ideas and just rpg ideas in general so neil this is your first one i'm looking forward to hearing all of your ideas i'm terrified i know you said man this is hard making these up well this is my fifth one so i feel the struggle buddy oh good call yeah (laughs) i do not envy you at this time hopefully i've got some gems for you guys today i really like some of my ideas which is a good thing right but before that we have some five star reviews so start us off neil with a five star review the first one comes from your average ryan Um, nothing special about this ryan i don't know i think he's special (laughs) because he gave us a five star review and entitled it this is great i'm new at DD, and so is the group i play with so i took on the task of dungeon master awesome this podcast has helped me out a lot and is not only helpful but entertaining i still haven't listened to every one of the episodes but i'm working at it keep it up thank you and i love that you like that's a goal is like i'm gonna get through it all (laughs) i haven't yet but i'm gonna thank you your average ryan yeah thank you you special average ryan you (laughs) our next one comes from crash murdoch and is entitled great rp podcast five stars there's a lot of D&D podcasts out there, but this is by far one of my favorites. The guys provide a lot of great advice for new and experienced dungeon masters, and most of it is useful for any RPG, not just Dungeons & Dragons. I particularly like the ideas for world building and their creation and inspiration episodes, hey. which is right now. So you're welcome, Crash Murdoch, and thank you, Crash Murdoch, for that awesome review. Yes, thank you. And with that, let's head to the meat. I'm starving. We ain't had nothing but maggoty bread for three stinking days. Why can't we have some meat? Welcome back to the meat on this episode. Yes, it's true. We're here for top tens. And to begin with, Jim had the brilliant idea. He wanted to do a little 
different spin on top tens. He wants to bring to you today, what is what is this list entitled, Jim? Is it Jim's top 10 tips for building a plot in an RPG game? Yeah, let's let, let's go with that. And and once again, you're being way, way too nice because the reality <laughs> is you said, hey, would you do a top 10 list? And I go, I'm going to do a theme list. And you go, well, we don't really do theme lists. I went, I'm going to do a theme list. Is that okay? Is that okay? <laughs> and then you're like, eh. and I was like, here's my theme list. So, uh, yes. I yes. didn't want to have to send you more M&Ms. So <laughs> I only have so much money to buy M&Ms. So. The last bag was blue and i'm kind of offended by that but i'm still here so i'm trying to be a trooper so we're gonna do this in true top 10 order we're gonna work up to what you think is the best piece of your top 10 so let's start off with your advice for building plot with number 10 jim okay my number 10 piece of advice is the campaign is the pc story not the gm story even though I put this at number 10, I, this is a very, very important concept to understand. And that is when you are planning out a story, everything about it should be for the players. This isn't for your NPC. While you're getting to express your own story, the story's not really for you. The story is for them. And that is one of the big concepts that I feel people should remember is, okay, hey, I made this king of this kingdom is is super awesome and I really like his character. And then I've got, you know, the the advisor and he's sort of sinister and I I've, I've been writing his backstory and I'm re- re- really into sort of the dark characters and he's a little bit of an anti-hero and all this and oh my goodness, there would be this great scene where they have this whole trade dispute thing that's going on and they could have this big conversation about it and suddenly we're no longer doing anything that has any bearing on the players. We, we can justify it and go, well, if there's a trade dispute, it will inform what's happening in the marketplace. No, 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 no. This is a story for your players. You are now entertaining yourself when what you should be doing is looking what engages with them, what engages with their backstory, what progresses and tells this story that is for them. So that's my my number 10 piece of advice is a campaign is the PC story, not the GM story. And you're talking right now to a lot of GMs and a lot of DMs out there who are listening. But I think that this is something that the GMs and the DMs that are listening should go forth and tell to the players of their campaigns, guys, this is your story. Because I feel like not a lot of players, we talked all last episode about plot being seen as this dirty word, but if you as the DM, as the GM, can express to your players, guys, this is your story, and give them that sense of empowerment, I think you're going to start the the entire campaign off on the right foot, out that door, on that journey. I think that's a reason why a lot of players build characters that have these really ridiculously crazy backgrounds like I killed a dragon and I killed it with my father's sword and blah 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 and it's like well you're a level one character that doesn't really make sense but I think that might stem from the fact that some players don't believe they're going to be able to do these amazing things during the story and set it off from the beginning from the start of the campaign say guys this is your story number nine number nine now Mitch you said you're, you're a fan of drama and oh, then yeah. this this, this goes this goes right yeah. right to it drama and tragedy for good drama what you need to do or I should say what should what will help is if you humanize your villain or humanize your antagonist mm. now i have i have a couple good tricks for this but let me just 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 say what exactly i mean if your villain is just a bloodthirsty kick every puppy in the street then there's no <laughs> drama there's no tragedy 
in, you know, ultimately slaying this villain because, okay, it's an evil force. We, we, we are victorious over the evil force. Yes, it's great. And that's a perfectly fine story to tell. But if you want to make it a little bit more deep, I'm going to use the term, then what you, one of the good tricks to do is to humanize them, make them an actual living person that you're going to feel bad about killing to defend your principles. Couple good ways to do this. Oh, this is a scene. I, I love doing this scene. And that is they they think the villain is this bloodthirsty, the bloodthirsty monster of a person. And they're chasing after him and they know where his lair is, and they break in his lair, swords drawn, spells ready to be cast, and they walk right into his wife and five-year-old kid. Ooh. What just happened here? He has a wife, he has a family, they they're not demon spawn, they're they're normal people. Suddenly, we're having a conversation. Oh, we're going to go kill your husband. We are going to go kill your father because he did this, this, and this. Suddenly, the choice gets a lot heavier. So that's one of my tricks. I'll I'll give another one of my interesting tricks. And this is is a subtle one. Oh, this gets people. This is sort of what you have to do this before you get to the point where it's totally bloodthirsty against your villain. But what you do is give your villain hobbies and passions. For those in the first episode, I made reference to the L5R series, and I won't spoil it, but there's... There, there is a person who kind of becomes maybe he's the antagonist of the story that they are engaging with and they just know he's the worst person in the world and suddenly he starts talking about jade working and he's completely fascinated by it and passionate about it and respects good jade working. Because what we do as humans in our mind, when we don't like something, we villainize it, we demonize it, we go, this is wrong, it's different, everything about it is wrong and different. Suddenly, when we're engaging with someone that has passions and interests, we can no longer demonize that person. Based on the story we're telling, we're still going to have to ultimately come to blows and you know have a resolution with this person, again, depending on what story you're telling. But suddenly, this person is passionate about things, he has hobbies, he has interests, he has a wife, he has a kid. This is a much more interesting and a much more deep encounter than there's the bloodthirsty guy that kicks puppies. I think the villain needs to think they're right. That's a key component that Hmm. I think goes directly with this is that the very good villain thinks they're doing the right thing. Their methodology and sense of the world may be completely skewed and obviously it's air quote bad, but they think they're right. They're the hero of their story, yeah. Everyone is the protagonist of their own story, even the villain. Okay, number eight kind of ties a little bit into number ten with a little difference here. And that is number eight is only plan or take actions that directly affect the PCs. Let me explain where I'm coming from with this. This applies a lot to sandbox type games, and that is I, I hear a lot of people, and I hear a lot of people, you know, tour talk about when they run sandbox games of okay, I'm gonna run this sandbox game, and there's gonna be this faction over here doing this, and this faction over here doing this, and the, the, the traders guild over here and the assassins guild over here, and if the players don't do anything about in the big bad and turns, you know, like that war is gonna get worse over there. And and I listen to all of this and and I start thinking, and it ties back again to number 10 of why are you doing all of this work? Why are you doing all of these events that don't tie into your story and who your story is about? And your story is about the players. 
Now, I understand. I know entirely where the concept coming from. I completely feel it. It's, I want to feel like I have a big immersive world with all of these things going on. And you absolutely can. Let's go back to Lord of the Rings from the previous episode that we were talking about. It feels like a massive immersive world with so many things going on, yet every single thing that happens ties directly into the main characters of the story and is there to influence, to give them things to overcome, to give them, to to demonstrate who they are as characters. It's all designed specifically to apply to that. The reason it doesn't feel that way is because it's a masterpiece of writing, and that's that's part Mm -hmm. of the, the mastery work of doing it, is to be able to hide what you're actually doing. The reality is, it's all there to inform the players and the main characters. So that would be one of my big pieces of advice, is when you're thinking about all of the stuff that you're doing, it all should be interacting with the players. It all should be doing that, and if it's not doing that, ask yourself really seriously, why am I spending time and effort on doing something that's not there to interact with the players? You brought up Lord of the Rings, but even in the sense of it may be interacting with a playable character that isn't even still around, it wasn't just rangers that come across Frodo and Sam, but it was rangers led by one of the other main characters' brother, Boromir's brother, Faragorn, and like tying that back in and even if a pc has died there's ways to like pay homage to them as well and maybe that player is still around the table and they're they're gonna really appreciate that and being like my character who died in the story he still means something Mm -hmm. number seven this goes into a lot of player agency uh, and this is one of one of Jim McClure's key rules into how he runs a game, and that is the PCs must resolve the finale. And I want to really, really emphasize this point. The PCs should be responsible for the resolution of the finale of a story arc. It should not happen by happenstance. It should not happen by an NPC. If the PCs weren't there, it should not resolve. Lord of the Rings seems to be a wonderful example of all this, so let's go with this. The pinnacle finale is obviously us in the volcano. It's our three characters that are in there, in the volcano, to dump the ring. They're the ones that have to do it. They are making that choice. They are having that struggle that's been built up through the entire session. If suddenly a rock fell from above and knocked out the ledge and all three of them fell... It ruins everything because they didn't make the choice. They didn't make the sacrifice. They didn't play to their characters. They must resolve it. In a, you know, in a more tabletop world, if you were having, you know, a big fight, you know, you're going against a kingdom, you're leading a revolt, you know, you're, you're going to overthrow this evil king, you can't have an army sweep in from the north and defeat the king. Because then the players lost all of their agency. They lost their victory. You took it from them. They need to be the ones that actually achieve. They need to be the ones that take the actions, the ones that make the decisions, that resolve your finale. Because that's actually what gives the sense of finale, the sense of completeness, and the sense of, of actually winning in a way. Like, you, we did something. This was us, and it was our, our choices. For good or bad, we did it, and we made it happen. I've said many times that the final night of a campaign and then leading into like an epilogue type night is that's my favorite time of the campaign because you've gone through this lengthy storytelling with your friends and to be able to put that beautiful bow on top of that story even if it's a bow that has tragedy in it as well as joy as well as victory like that's the moment together you wrap that story up and yet if you with your players 
build this whole entire story together and they've been playing this character, they've been putting forth this effort into playing the character and going along with the plot that you've developed and then you take away the victory and take away any victory that their character would have at the end by just being like, and then my DMPC comes in and kills the final boss and the world is saved. It's like <laughs> you've lost that entire campaign. You're going to have that play those players from then on remember that campaign was terrible. And let me just make a note about that, because you were 100% right. But one of the other things that comes in into play here is a lot of times players have a really hard time articulating that that's why they were upset. Yeah. Because they're not looking at it as set pieces and story pieces and all of that. They're only seeing what they experienced. They just went, uh, okay, I guess the ending was all right. And they don't have the ability to articulate that. I should say a lot of people don't have the ability to articulate that. They just It just doesn't feel right. So it's Part of part of the learning process of being a GM is to be able to analyze these type of situations. But I think you're you're a hundred percent right on. Number six. Here's an interesting concept. Whew, oh boy, here we go. <sighs> Work in narrative space time, not physical space time. When you are planning the events of the story. What I'm going to encourage you to at least try, I, I, I do this, this is how I GM, but I would encourage you to at least try it if you work differently. When you are planning events of the story, you know, okay, I need to introduce my characters to the villain, but they don't need to know he's the villain yet, but they need to have sort of like a gruff encounter with him. So I'm going to have him at the bar and they're going to spill a drink and they're going to sort of go back and forth and that'll kind of introduce my villain. That's what I want to do. If I think that that event can only take place at night in this bar, I am working in physical space-time. What I'm going to encourage you to do is think about it narratively. Think about it like a book tells the story. The next scene to happen is our gruff encounter with the villain. So that next scene is going to happen wherever my players go. So if they decide not to go to the bar, they decide to go visit the capital. Well, suddenly, now we're just going to bump into each other and you're going to rip the villain's favorite shirt. We're having the exact same scene. We're accomplishing the exact same thing, but we are doing it in narrative space-time as opposed to physical space-time. This same thing can be applied to finding clues. If the next clue in the mystery to be found is, you know, okay, we have to find, you know, the letter that, that proves the guilt of the Duke or whatever it is the story that we're doing, that letter does not have to be on his wife's shelf. It doesn't have to be there. It can be there, but it can be wherever it needs to be to make the story happen and make them feel like they discovered it on their own. This is an uncomfortable concept for some people, but I would highly encourage you to at least try it, and that is think about all of your things happening when they need to happen narratively as opposed to being tied to a specific geographic location and time. Yeah, it's that idea of linear and loose again, like... You have a destination, you have an object, whatever it is that you want your players to get to, but how they get to it, where it is, be flexible with that. Number five, know when to add complexity and know when you should tie complexities together. So... As we're building out a story, what you're going to find is there's going to be various characters, things, plot threads for, for the players to interact with. And there's going to probably be a lot of them, especially if you've run games before, you know that there starts to become a lot of moving pieces in your story. And this takes a little bit of experience to, uh, to get used to, but it's knowing how many different things do I want my players to interact with? And at what point do I start letting those become different things? And at what point do I start tying those things? together. 
if my players are on their quest to find the guilt of the Archduke and, and get him out of uh, out of power, as it were, and they're looking around and they find that he's got deals with some nefarious, you know, organization. They're the Assassin's Guild. And then we also find that he has this random ornate cup that is from some far-off land. It's something I don't recognize. Maybe it administers poison. I'm not really sure. We have two different things going on now. We have two different complexities. We, we, we have a, a Assassin's Guild and we have an odd cup. What I need to then do as a GM is decide, are these things related or are these entirely separate concepts? And I also, again, this is more more high-level advice, I would say, need to understand how many concepts that are completely unrelated have I allowed my players to create and interact with in this world. Because if you get too many, if there's an Assassin's Guild and we're trying to overthrow the Archduke and there's a weird merchant thing going on that's making odd cups and there's an Oni that's being built underneath the town, oh, and and the, the gods and heavens are about to make a change and uh, you know, I, I've, I've got a hangnail that won't go away and has turned evil you know i've got all of these different things going on at what point is there just so much that there's no way to continue a story so one of the things you should really look at is whenever i'm creating a new complexity if i have too many or i think i have too many what i should do is tie that to one of the others okay the evil hangnail is a result of the oni that's being built underneath now they're part of the same story i've tied those complexities together the gods up above are changing in response to being able to fight this oni i've now tied those into a story the other stories still ongoing and you don't have to tie everything into one story my rule of thumb is no more than 3 no less than two. Again, that is not a hard and firm rule. That's just something that, that I use. So that's sort of where or I land. And then when new mysteries arrive, they're going to get tied into some of the other concepts. I think it happens, especially if you think about by it, I mean, adding too much complexity and trying to not really figure out how they all work together. I mean, think about the idea of what we're like gonna do and have done before is the 10 concepts of the creation and inspiration. And like, we have so many ideas and Mitch, you already said it. Like I have so many ideas and I'll never get enough time to do them all. And people that I think might try and force them all. And I think there are good ways to really make the, make it work. But I mean, if you add too much, it just, it just can't all fit together. There's too many, too many cooks in the kitchen. Too many food mages. I think that Ooh. you also run into, and everybody knows how much I like to sli- split the party, but I think you're going to split the party in an unhealthy way. Mm-hmm. One person's going to be fixated on one thing. Another player's going to be fixated on another thing. They're going to want to go different ways. They're going to want to follow different trails. They're going to follow different plot hooks. It's just going to become a divided group of not only PCs, but players and what they want to continue and follow through with. And what's going to eventually happen is you're going to lose interest in certain ones because you're going to pick one over the other and all those things you threw out, they're never going to all get fulfilled. For number four, you must give PCs the concept of regular accomplishment in order to make a long campaign. And this isn't really a big point, but I think it's a very important point. And that is a lot of people, especially when they start out GMing, I know this was very true for me. Again, I I had a story planned out from level one to level 30 of fourth edition D&D, and you fought the, the first big bad guy when you hit level 25. 
You know how long it takes to get to level 25 in a fourth edition campaign? <laughs> what you need to do, though, is you need to give them a sense of finale, a sense of accomplishment. You know, this is why you see in, you know, if we look at movies that do, you know, trilogies or even longer series like what we're starting to see with the comic book style movies, you know, we have finales at the end of that movie. Why do we have that? Because something happened. You know, if, if we look at Avengers, we had the big city fight that happened in the first Avengers. We had accomplishment. We had end of story. We had greatness. And yet the story continues on. We had finale. We entered into our next arc. If you do not give your players the concept of finale and you just try and push the story forward forever, what happens is eventually they lose interest because they can't stay in the same act of the story for too long or else it just gets mundane. So it's a real simple concept, but what I try to do, I said it in the first episode, every 15 to 20 hours, I'm trying to give my players some sense of accomplishment or finale because that rejuvenates them for the next arc. All I have to say for that one is go back and listen to our episode on never-ending stories. I cannot agree with Jim Moore. Betray you! Wait, no, that's not it. <laughs> <laughs> Number three, we're down to top three. Top three. Yes. Okay. Here's a concept that we're going to start marrying everything together, and that is learn to use improv in combination with planned plot. This is the magic of tabletop RPGs. This is something that does not occur in any other medium of entertainment. As much as video games want so much to be able to give you total freedom and then be able to tie that into story, they can't do it. We're the only ones that get to do it. That's why tabletop is the highest form of art known to mankind. <laughs> So what you're going to do is you're going to work and develop your tools as a DM. You're going to learn how to tell stories, how to tell plot, how to plan plot, and then you're going to learn how to do improv, and you're going to learn how to react to improv, and then you can take these two concepts and put them together. You can take your player that has, okay, I my player came to the table, and we're going to have a serious campaign, and he came up with having an evil hangnail. Why in the world would he do that? And I just start squeezing my head. But this is the improv world. We need to go with it. We need to do yes and. We need to we need to go with what my players want to do because it's their story. How do I tie in that evil hangnail? Well, I have my Oni that's being built under the city. Now I have a connection. Now I have how it got cursed. You know, now I have continued story. What I'm going to do is allow my players to do all of their improv goodness. I'm going to say yes. Most of the time, I am one of those people that, that promotes no is okay on rare occasions, to be said. But yes and as much as possible, and then I'm going to keep working that. I'm going to keep weaving that into the story that I want to tell. Suddenly, he says his brother shows up. Okay, I hadn't planned for the brother, but let me see. Oh, we had a trader's guild that's connected to my archduke. The brother is part of the trader's guild. I am working with their improv to tie it into the story and build forward. My personal belief, I think improv is really, really good at establishing act one of a story. And I think planned plot is much better at delivering act two and act three. Now, either side can work for the whole thing, but I think those are where those concepts shine. And in tabletop, we actually get to use these things together. The idea of like writing an outline before you write an essay, like that's how you should approach the table is like you have this very basic outline of meeting the villain. But like that should be your outline point. It shouldn't be meeting the villain in a bar while having a drink at night. 
because that's that's too much. That improv piece is figuring out, okay, that's where the players want, that's what they're doing, and that's how they interacted with it. But you still had meeting the villain. So I think working kind of with that analogy is a good way to approach it. All right, number two. Ah, here's a big magical piece to the storytelling pie. And this especially applies a lot to tabletop, because one of the things a lot of people try to strive with tabletop, especially finale-type events, is having it feel epic. Ah, they want that epic-feeling story. I'm going to tell you exactly how you achieve epicness. Epicness comes from the culmination of experienced events. There's the keys to the kingdom. That's what you do. Lord of the Rings, absolutely. We've not talked about that in a while. Lord of the Rings, our (laughs) final battle in in Lord of the Rings, is everything that we as the viewing audience or, or, or readers experienced in that story coming together in one event. All the stakes are on the line. Everything that happened all factors into it. When Frodo is deciding whether or not to throw the ring in the fire... Every single scene that happened before, all of the struggles, everything like that ties into it. So epicness does not come from big, huge armies. Epicness does not come from big, huge speeches. It comes from taking everything that happened up until that point and tying it together in one single event. And that will make it feel bigger than anything that has ever happened before. And that is the key to making that feeling of epicness. And I think it has to be said, for that moment, you have to, as a DM and a GM, you have to work for that like you need to put the effort into taking notes along the way remembering certain moments remembering those moments that stood out to your players that were key moments for your players their characters and if you're invested in that story as a whole like and you've been taking notes or you've made notes because you've made plot points and kind of taking notes on like what happened during those plot points along the way, it's going to be a lot easier to, in that moment, know what is the best way to go about that. Okay, number one, it's got to be the, the culmination of everything that we've talked about um, is is the, the understanding the art of being a GM. Everything we've talked about is tools. Number one is understanding the art of being a GM, and that is storytelling is a combination of science and art. The concepts are science. The execution is art. It's really that simple. Understanding how storytelling works, understanding what scenes do to make emotions, to move people, and to create memories, that is a science. We know exactly how to do it. There are thousands of books written every year of novels that are people that understand how to make that happen. There's hundreds of movies made, hundreds of television shows, and it's because storytelling is a science. We know exactly how to do it. However, to actually do it is an art. It is a performance. It is a being able to execute the things that you have the technical knowledge of after you've gained that technical knowledge. With that concept, I want you to understand if you really want to progress, if you really want to to turn DMing into you know a true art form, which is really what I strive to do, it's my own personal little goal, what you have to do is you have to understand the concepts of storytelling. You have to research them. You have to listen to wonderful podcasts such as this and learn what the sciences are to telling stories. Then you have to practice. 
because it is an art. No one walked, you know, to a painting and made, you know, their first painting a masterpiece. It won't happen. My first game was awful. My first campaign was awful. My second campaign was just on the north side of awful. <laughs> uh, I have run terrible, terrible, terrible games, but I was learning the art, the art and its part execution. And to this day, I know the concepts. I can execute well. I still fail. I still run bad games, and that's all part of the experience. So, again, storytelling is the combination of science and art. The concepts are science, and the execution is art. What is, yeah, what is your tagline? RPGs are the highest form of art known to mankind. Done. Mm. And you've proven it with your top 10, especially <laughs> your number one. <laughs> Jim, thanks for sharing your top 10 tips. Yes. Absolutely. Your talking tabletop top 10 tips for <laughs> oh, making my, Yes. Spot. Hashtag TTT, TTT, right? That'll, that'll catch on. That'll sweep the nation. Yeah, I'm, sh- yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> it was certainly a, a good look at what makes a strong, interesting plot. And I think for many of our listeners who are GMs and DMs, this will be something that they can just really take take notes on and really just walk away and be like, man, I've got some really good ideas on how to strengthen my plot now or how to go about making that new campaign plot that I have an idea for. At this time, me and Neil also have top tens, adventure hooks, encounter ideas, lore ideas to give to you. And Jim has been gracious enough to stick around and he's going to give us some feedback on our top 10 ideas as well. (laughs) Neil, speaking of, this was your first time giving a top 10 on the Dungeons and Masters block. Tell me about the process of coming up with a top 10. Sheer terror. Sheer, <laughs> I don't know. It's hard. I mean, and I think it's a little bit harder for me because there are already four in the can as well as some <laughs> from guests. So it's like there's this huge precedent set starting off with, and I looked back because I, I had actually written them all down in a document. The food mage was actually the very first idea that you, Mitch, presented. It started off real strong. So I <laughs> real I, strong. My my goal is to at least not disappoint very much. Is your number one a food fighter? Is that what it is? No. <laughs> it, it, the eater. He just eats everything. Ooh, I like that. It's a warrior with a shield that's just a mouth yes. that eats whatever the food maid throws at him. Boom. That's my ten. No, <laughs> that's not my ten. But <laughs> top eleven. <laughs> Top of number 11, yeah. All right, Niels, why don't you start us off? Number 10, what is your number 10? Okay, if nothing else, I will hopefully have hilarious names for each of them, even if the ideas themselves are terrible. <laughs> Perfect. So my first one is Shh, Real Monsters. Kind of a playoff of the raw real monsters. So the party is actually in the employ of a group that is trying to keep all of the monsters in the world under wraps. The fear that stems from these monsters coming out is just too much to handle. So a little bit more of a developed world, possibly having like limitations on certain races that are more exotic, I guess we would say. And essentially the party has to go around and fight these monsters while at the same time making sure that no one knows they exist. So kind of like a little bit men in black feel, but that's my idea. I like that. So like a, a more mundane world. Yeah. But it's like the, the magic and the monsters are like in the shadowy parts of the world that nobody knows about. Yeah, exactly. So my number 10 
is called Childhood Friends, and this is an idea I've had for a while, but I have never put it in a top 10 list, so here it is. You start off a new campaign, you get a, of course you have to do character creation night, you work with your players to make their characters, and if you need a way to bring the characters together, why not have the first night of a campaign start off with the characters, all the PCs, as children. They all start off in the same town, and they all start off as children, and some mini adventure happens that first night as their children and together they need to team up as kids and work together to either fight off a monster or whatever it is maybe find some treasure and they become friends at a very very young age and that kind of sets it up to allow even if they grow old together and their outlooks on life change depending on what goes on they still always have this growing up together to fall back on. I thought that would be really interesting. I always thought it would be really interesting too to play at least a like little mini adventure as all the PCs being kids. Kind of like a Rugrats in D&D kind of thing. I like that idea because then it's more tangible when they need to fall back onto that backstory. You can say that they all grew up as kids, but the fact that they have a session where they actually played and have much more real, tangible things, I think could go a lot... I mean, honestly, it just could just go a lot further than just mm-hmm. saying, air quote, we grew up as kids. I'm just in love with the concept of D&D with, for Rugrats, like as in the TV show, and I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm stuck with this now. You got to play like the theme music, like as you're like getting ready to, for, for like a, an epic moment and whatnot. No, I'm Tommy Pickles. <laughs> <laughs> what, what class would Tommy Pickles be? Totally fighter, I totally think, right? Fighter. Maybe rogue. He's always using the screwdriver, right? To get True. out of a, oh, that's a, maybe he's a rogue. That's a fair point. Mm. Disabled device. <laughs> yeah, so that's my number 10. What about your number nine, Neil? Groundhog's Day with swords. So for <laughs> this one, it's essentially taking the idea of Groundhog's Day and Edge of Tomorrow and putting them together and taking that concept and putting it in whatever campaign setting that you want to. The interesting component that I would want to add, though, is leveling up just the mental faculties. Because theoretically, the physical aspects of the player wouldn't necessarily level up if they're restarting each day, but they're learning more. And then how else would you limit the character because they're having to repeat the same day as well as allowing them to progress? The other thing would be, could they harness this power that they have and use it whenever they want to try and figure out how to make a better day out of something terrible that happened? So maybe a one shot, maybe a smaller piece of a campaign. But yeah, Groundhog's Day. It's awesome. Yeah, I think that would definitely work as a one shot or a smaller piece, like you said, of a campaign. I like the idea of going the opposite direction and just do a war of attrition against your players. Of We are going to do a full campaign of Groundhog's Day. and you're, you're <laughs> I want you're you to play. feel the pain that these <laughs> Every week you're going to going play through. the same thing until you all quit. <laughs> that is your goal as, as the DM. Amazing. Yeah, that'd go over well. My number nine is called the shotgun, and then I put it in parentheses because shotguns in classing D&D aren't a thing. The shotgun slash heavy crossbow wedding. 
<laughs> this is pretty much just what it sounds like. I've had many moments where my PCs in a game, one of the PCs will decide, oh, my character, he's gone through a rough day fighting monsters or whatever it is. He goes back to the tavern. He's just going to drink. He continues to drink. And so I would love to one time with one of my PCs totally just say, okay, cool. That's awesome. You do that and have them wake up in a bed next to somebody they don't know. And when they were, <laughs> during that night, they had like one of those classic nights in Vegas nights where they wake up and they wake up next to an, their new wife because they went out, they got married, they got totally hitched. They had a quick shotgun wedding and now they're married to this new woman and they want to settle down. They want this adventure to settle down, to stop adventuring. They want to go get a house. They want to raise some kids and now you have a PC who has a dilemma in front of them of, you're married to this woman now or this man. What are you going to do? They want you to settle down. They want you to stop adventuring. That is awesome. I'd actually heard a kind of that idea from Friar Took recently. Oh, yeah? <laughs> like, essentially, not all the players were going to show up. So he was going to make the other ones that were there essentially play through kind of that scenario. Like, they had just been at the bar too long the night before and then they had to figure out what had happened so yeah i think that could work super well in a lot of different scenarios i i love it as the the consequence for well a lot of people can probably relate to the one player that is always going to going to flirt with the bar wench <laughs> you know it's just it's inevitable like that's what's going to happen in the bar scene and just to to allow it to progress have our fade to black when they go upstairs and then just the next yeah. morning all of a sudden it's like oh oh, daddy's come knocking with a heavy crossbow and it's time to walk down the aisle. <laughs> yes. uh, I love it. You can even have like one of the last things they do, but the one of the last things they remember and you can even role play out with them is the waitress at the bar just gives them a little wink and you describe her as, oh, she's she's very cute. And of course, how many players are going to be like, oh, I, I wink back. I'll, I'll, I'll raise my glass to her. And that's the last thing I remember. And then the rest is history. What about your number eight, Neil? Right. Number eight is the topless tower. But don't worry, we're still a family-friendly podcast. <laughs> the idea is essentially like the Undending Sea campaign, but vertical rather than horizontal. Ooh. So then there's this tower that no one's ever been able to get to the top of and bring back any information. <laughs> so then figuring out kind of the same aspects of like, what do they do? How do they get any food when they run out? Is there ever any access into the tower? If there is, like, what in the world is going to live there? So the other thing I thought is having, like, a magical shield around it so that, one, the players can't just fly up. Two, the wind won't just knock them off once they get high enough, <laughs> as funny as that does sound to me. But then, like, not having that be 100% guarantee. So, yeah, the unending journey up instead of across. Yeah. I like that. I mean, a topless tower in the sense of this tower goes so high that nobody can see if it even has a top that only exists in a world where magic is rampant. Definitely. So having those kind of protections up for this magical type of tower definitely, definitely makes sense. And yeah, I feel like that would have to be a very, very dangerous place to go or people would love going around it all the time and be like, oh, let's see if we can reach the top and what dangers await with each new level. My number eight is called Arcane Fallout. And so it's pretty much just like it sounds. I think it'd be really awesome to have a 
a fantasy setting that's apocalyptic in nature, but instead of having it be a nuclear fallout situation, having it be that there was a huge war between either the gods or wizards or whatever it is, and the world was just totally decimated by the magic that was being thrown about. And now you have like arcane fallout you have monsters walking away that are the equivalent of monsters that have been like mutated by nuclear radiation it's they have been mutated by magic and they just have magical abilities or they're just like really freaky looking and i mean even all the races that you play could have some sort of weird mutated aspects this could be somewhat along the lines of a gamma world campaign to be honest only very very like magic prevalent in that sense that also infuses you know the the players and the magic that they're dealing with you know i picture something in my mind that's like you know essentially all magic essentially has some wild magic aspect to it of you're not exactly sure always how it's going to react because the fundamentals of magic have changed in ways that we don't understand like ah i don't know that that hits all my buttons for me because magic in a DD game like just by the the rules itself it kind of sets a bit up to have this lore with magic that magic has rules to it but now with this arcane fallout does magic not have rules like are people who use magic is it not that they cast specific magic but it's constantly like a spell failure thing if you conjure up a spell you don't know what you're going to get out of it like and thus magic becomes even more dangerous and in an apocalyptic type setting should be dangerous that's that's a staple of apocalyptic right a little bit and i like the idea <laughs> of everyone getting some magic almost like from a mechanical perspective if you have a fighter they're going to have the eldritch knight background and just every single class their magic is more powerful or present and it could be a really cool way of presenting how thick in the air magic now is See, now I have to jump in now immediately with my uh, inspired number eight because Mitch inspired me to have one real quick. And that is the perfectly safe apocalypse. I don't know what that means yet, but uh, (laughs) I now want a perfectly safe apocalypse. Tweet at Jim McClure on Twitter and and tell him what the perfectly safe apocalypse is. Awesome. It was a a pillow bomb going off. That's what it was. everywhere. Pillows and blankets everywhere. (laughs) If you guys have seen uh, the community, the show Community... Yes. It's the blanket fort, but all over awesome. the world. That's what it is. <laughs> number seven, Neil. What's your number seven? Number seven is the devil is in the everything. <laughs> so for this one, the entire world has been tainted by evil or the area that the PCs are from, depending on how that fits into your campaign. But everyone is considered half demon or whatever evil entity that they choose. And it's a constant struggle between that demonic side and their normal race and class combo. But the players can also decide how close to that line they want to play. In 3.5, there was a ghost class where you could take a level in ghost, essentially, or Eidolon. And if you surpassed your level in your normal level, you would just disappear and turn completely into a ghost. So kind of that same kind of concept. If you're too close to the line, you ha- you run the risk of turning evil. 
and then you will probably have to fight your party for a little while. One that kind of spurred that was the anime Claymore. For that kind of world, I have this bit of lore that came to my mind while you were saying that. I like this real struggle between the people of the world of some of them want to do good and they they constantly are struggling with their demonic side and the side that wants to be better than what the blood coursing through their veins tells them that they are. But I feel like there would be like a world like that has to have been abandoned by the the good gods. But I wonder if there's a paladin order of angels that has made it their goal to cleanse this world. And so those are like the big bads of this world. I mean, like when I think of D&D and I think of big bads, like Ballardemon comes to mind, but I don't think of angels because they're they're the good the good ones. But angels in this world would be like the big bads because they're going around And for your PCs that may be struggling to do good, you might have this really, really interesting interaction between angels who aren't going to listen because they have the the classic what a lot of people wrongfully so boil down paladins to be like of like paladins are just like they don't listen. They don't do this. They don't do that. But you could have that sense and you could have your PCs struggling with morality come across these angels that just want to destroy them and don't want to listen. And it's just, nope, we're here. We're here to completely obliterate you. And I think that'd be really interesting. My number seven is entitled kill the dragon. And I think that this would be a great battle for an end of the campaign. If you have a dragon in your campaign, that is the big bad and you're planning on having the end fight be with a dragon. Well, why just have a battle on the ground with this dragon. Dragons are <laughs> dragons are extremely tough. They're going to be difficult enough on the ground. But hey, if you're going to be having your PCs fight a dragon, why not bring it to the air? Because the dragon has wings. Why not have a scene where the dragon is attacking your PC's hometown? Uh, think of like Smog swooping down in The Hobbit, and he's just attacking the town. And the PC's have to step in, have to save the town, and so they have to take that on this dragon, and you could have this fantastic battle where the PCs now have to either ride on griffins, giant eagles, pegasi, whatever it is, they could have this awesome mounted combat battle in the air against a dragon. Now I know if we're talking like minis on a map, that could be a terrible, terrible setup. However... Like, I would theater of the mind it, but that would be, in my opinion, just this fantastic, doesn't have to be end of campaign, but I feel like that's, that's a, that is a good end of campaign battle. I like that idea, and the one that I would toss out real quick is if you go Google the Deathwing fight in World of Warcraft, where the whole fight is on the back of Deathwing. So it can give you some ideas if you actually want the players to land on the dragon and oh. try and help take it down if it's that large. Hmm. So. What's your number six, Neil? Speaking of World of Warcraft, my number six is MM. Oh my. And so for this one, it's definitely going to be a one shot. Definitely. It is not a sustainable idea, but own it. Just make the setting and structure and everything as video game as possible. So this could also be utilized to kind of get the friends that are very video game heavy into tabletop and essentially even go as far as like your first quest. Please go kill 10 boars and bring me back their skins and just 
essentially just own the comedy and everything about the MMO world that is kind of tropey and put it into your tabletop. Again, hmm. one shot idea. Definitely not sustainable. <laughs> I, I, I love that because the first thought that I had is I'm going to have NPCs that are going to only speak one line the first time they're spoken to and then a different <laughs> line every other time that they're talked to until their needs are met. And that is it. Oh, it'd be wonderful and tropey. Oh, I'd love it. <laughs> that was my other idea. Is like, Steve, how did you get captured again today by the same people? Not again, Steve. Not again. <laughs> My number six harkens back to, Neil, you brought up the food mage being on my first list. Another thing that I had on my first list of top tens was something called Plot Twist, and it was about an illusionist makes both sides see the other as evil, ugly orcs or some worst enemy or whatever it is, and then they end up killing each other even though they were two armies of allies. And so I had this further idea that, okay, so what if you switch one of the sides being an army and it's just, it's a village. So it's a village of people and an army gets word that the entire village has been taken over by a wizard and his orc allies or whatever the allies are. And so this army goes in and they completely destroy all the orcs in the city but the wizard was an illusionist who was casting a spell on the entire village, and it was the village people who had no idea he was even there that were looking like orcs. And so these warriors come in, and they completely slay all the villagers, Some a very dark, <laughs> dark scenario, and they only find out once they finally track down the wizard and they capture him, and they find out later on as the bodies, after the wizard has been killed, turn back into their original selves. And so what I thought would be really interesting is if this was a piece of history in your world, and now the king during that time was like, we can't let this get out, we can't, this is exactly what this wizard wanted, this is making him victorious, so the king covers it up, and says that these villagers were all destroyed by these orcs. These brave knights came in and destroyed the orcs, and so there's, like, monuments brought up to, like, remember these knights, and so that's that's been around in your world for a long time, and then your PCs in whatever campaign you're playing in find out the truth about this conspiracy that it was not actually orcs that they slayed, but it was an entire village of people. And so now at this point in history, these knights have very, very high prestige. They're looked at as like extreme heroes and your PCs have to have the moral dilemma. Do we out these knights or not? Because there's been so much good that has come out of this lie and bringing up the truth now may actually do a lot of damage. So do we bring up the truth or do we just let the lie sit there? I, I, I really like that. And I think the way you set that up is actually perfect. Because as you were originally describing it, you know, my concern was I go, well, if you run this campaign, you always have the risk of if the players never find out that the, you know, the illusionist even exists, then you can have a problem of, well, then it just comes off like a normal fight. And there was this cool thing, but no one knows right. about it. But as you talked about, I, I love that idea of it's not that they're the ones in the deception. It's that they're finding out about the deception later. And then it's the heavy hit of what do we do because if we bring this thing to light it's only going to make really things worse but should we allow this cover up to remain as it is ah, I think that's great I love it 
I love moral dilemmas like yes. that. And I'd love to see and and give them like, well, if they do bring up the truth, what happened? The entire group might be called the liars and they may have like whatever evidence that they've conjured up. It may secretly go and disappear from them. The king might put a bounty on their heads. These knights now are like are being questioned. And it's like, but these knights during this time, they're they're good. Like, I know this, but now it's doing damage. And oh, it, it just. I like those kind of things, and I like to see players struggle with them. I think it brings out really good role-playing moments is why. All right, we're down to top fives. What is your number five, Neil? All right, my number five is get your guild on. So for this one, (laughs) the players will play their characters until whatever level is deemed appropriate, and then they'll essentially become the head of a guild, and allowing that guild to afford them the opportunity of playing other characters. Because if you play the same characters for 15 levels, let's say, it can kind of get a little long in the tooth playing those exact same characters and you want to spice things up, but maybe you want to come back to it. So like a quick idea would be there's this roaming band of ogres that need handled. Level 15, that's not really in my wheelhouse anymore. Roving band of dragons, I'm on it. Ogres, no. So then the players could roll up a new set of characters that are in the guild that could go handle those ogres. And then they could come back and you could pick up the players. So just kind of almost having like a stable of different groups of characters that you could play that all exist inside the same guild. Just out of curiosity, have either of you ever ran a game like that, you know, where you have essentially the players, it's, you know, the same campaign in the same world, but they're regularly switching between characters? I haven't. I was just curious. I have. My Sons of Bastion campaign was like that. I want it to be a very dangerous campaign. I wanted my players to not constantly feel like their player characters were dying and it was just like this completely upsetting moment. So I had each player make up three characters and we switched between these characters on different nights and so they would go on different different tasks for the guild, different missions for the guild. They all stayed around the same level. We had like level caps, like the lowest level character, like set the level cap for the highest level character kind of thing. And it was in an effort to, if, if characters died, you, it was sad, but you had two other characters as well to like pull out and you didn't have to, we didn't have to constantly be coming up with stuff on the spot. It was interesting. It was, it was good for that campaign for sure. My number five is it's a concept that I took from one of the lands in my world, but I just think that it's it's something simple that leads to a lot of questions and a lot of adventure hooks that you could come up with and a lot of lore. So there's a land in your homebrew world, and it's been cursed by a, a either a powerful wizard or a god. And it's been cursed to be constantly nighttime in in this land. So dark clouds blot out the sun. And so it's always night in this entire country. And so that's that's my number five. I call it the dark curse. My question is, what, what happens differently in this land? How does this land operate differently because of this curse? It's constantly night. How does it affect the people? How does it affect, I feel like creatures from the Underdark might want to come to the surface more often. Drow would be very, very comfortable walking around this country. Yeah, the number one thing that I immediately thought of was flora and fauna, and how does that negatively impact the entire world? Because vegetation is definitely going to change, which then impacts 
the creatures that fed off of that vegetation, so on and so forth. And then definitely underdark creatures coming up, which would be amazing and terrible. The other thing that I thought about is there could be a really interesting, you know, sudden shift of balance of power in the world. You know, I'm thinking about the, you know, the armies, if we say had, you know, whatever humans was the, the dominant military force in the area. But then suddenly, you know, some of the smaller armies, but the ones that have night vision, uh, you know, or dark vision or low light vision even, uh, suddenly they become significantly more powerful and considering they have been you know downtrodden and marginalized for so long now they are the dominant military force just solely because of this sudden change uh could be an interesting uh political situation as well i think that's why i like it it's because it's a it's a simple turning off the lights but it changes so much like horses are not a good means of transportation because they don't have dark vision. So what do you replace horses with in this setting? What are people riding around on? I, I even think like what gods that w- are worshipped in this in this land. There may be some people who have embraced, if it's a god who did it, the god of darkness, and they worship the darkness, and they worship this dark god. There might be those who hate the darkness, and so their favorite thing is, is light, and so maybe they praise the god of fire because he grants them torches and virus is a precious precious thing and without it all the lights are completely dark it, it changes the whole setting by just one simple change i love it number four neil what's your number four number four is seasonal adventurer so this is actually a class concept where the entire class is based around the changing of the seasons and the player's ability to leverage those changes for their abilities if you will so that the things they can do or cast are based on the season of where they were trained so if it's winter they have more ice-based spells or if it's summer more heat-based spells it could necessitate having a longer air quote longer running campaign as in more time spent in the world or the other idea that i had was have the character's ability to reach into seasons that are farther away as they develop uh, in the class you know so if it's summer then they could start going into spring and fall and just so the entire thing is based around seasons so it could give a pretty interesting character and I don't know if it would be enough RP that they're like, well, we have to wait. Like, I'm not powerful enough to use those. So the only thing we can do is wait a month and then I'll have access to those abilities. (laughs) Then we can move forward. That reminds me of the way of the four elements with the monk class. But I feel like you could make this like awesome homebrew monk path that's a way of the four seasons and instead of like choosing an element they they choose a season in which they were they were trained in in which they gain their powers from and and like you said maybe during the season that they're in that's when it is the monks who have that path they're the ones that protect the monastery and each season changes in each way of the monk they step up and they protect the monastery they do whatever it is that they are called to do I like that a lot. 
My number four is called False God of Storms. And so I got this idea by looking at the D&D monster, the Storm Giant, and I had this idea that the party comes across a, a remote village, so a pretty small village that has uh, isn't really connected to the outside world, and they worship the god of the mountain. And so they're on the they're at the base of a mountain, and they will have like a priest, a village priest that will go up this mountain and they go and they talk to the God that can sometimes be even seen at the top of the mountain moving around and, and casting lightning bolts. He's, he's a God that controls the storm, that controls the weather. And I, I love presenting that to the PCs and seeing them kind of like not believe it, but then you have this moment where they see on the mountain a huge figure moving around and casting lightning bolts on this mountain so you have your play your players and the their pcs going oh my goodness there is a god on this mountain and he is casting lightning bolts and then you find out later on maybe the pcs find out maybe they don't but the god is actually a a rogue storm giant who's who's living completely by himself and one day the people of this village decided that they thought he was a god and why not? He loves this idea. And so he's been masquerading as their god and having them. He's been living the easy life. They've been bringing him food for sacrifices. He's just living the easy life off of this village of people and telling them, I protect you. I keep you safe. Bring me sacrifices. Worship me. I am the god of the mountain. I am the god of the storms. I love it. I love the idea, though, also that what do the players do? Yeah. <laughs> He's, Once again, he, yeah, do they out the truth yeah. of this of this giant? <laughs> is he evil or is he just kind of a jerk? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> maybe he's not evil at all. And maybe there's some aspect of him being a jerk, but maybe he does protect the village. So he's kind of a jerk, but he's kind of good for them at the same time. So do we tell the village that he's not really a god, that he's just a big, scary storm giant? Do we tell them that? Is that going to change anything? <laughs> We are down to top three. So, yes. Neil, what's your top, your number three? So, number three is the hunt for the beard force. So, this is obviously a super comical idea I came up with based on the fact that myself, DM Main Prize, and JM Perkins make up the beard force, a play on the Triforce from Zelda. And it is only through great trial and tribulation that the ultimate beard can be obtained <laughs> the master beard if you will and the players must seek out the three pieces of the beard force to gain access to the master beard but it's not an <laughs> item it's a man the beard of the beard of a god rather and he will train you in the way of the beard and essentially your beard will operate from then on as if it is an independent separate being as if it is transcended into the master beard. I'm, I'm sitting here laughing because I, I'm just thinking of this in my mind, probably way more than I should. But uh, and I'm like, you know what? A hundred times out of a hundred times that I run that, it's Chuck Norris. Like it's always <laughs> right? Chuck Norris. It has when I find to be. It, it has to be. <laughs> awesome. So my number three. I've toyed around with this idea for a while. I really, really would like to do this. It'll probably come down to being a one shot at some point. But 
I would love to run and I would love to play in a one class only campaign. All the PCs are either part of a guild or an adventuring party or whatever it is, but they're all comprised of one type of class. So we either have a campaign where everybody's druids or everybody's wizards or everybody's clerics or everybody's fighter whatever it is and i mean with with 5e with 3.5 you can especially with 5e with the paths you can still have them be different and have different flavor and but i would love especially i've really clinged on lately it used to be wizards that i wanted to do because it's like oh you could do like all the different types of schools and just have everybody be like an expert in different types of magic and so you just have this huge array of magic but then i've really clinged on to the druid idea lately i'm like oh it'd be so cool to have everybody be a druid and it's just like where it's an animorphs campaign everybody's just like transform and you got this bear running into battle with all these smaller animals on its back ready to just attack whatever it is they're attacking i love this idea because you bring both all of the strengths of that class into the campaign and all of the weaknesses. So you have you have an ogre that you don't get charmed and he's running at your wizarding party and he gets one hit and it's just like all the wizards are freaking out and they're running for their lives. They have no idea what to do. I actually have an experience doing this. Oh, um, nice. Tell us about that. Without going into too long of a story, the, the very first sort of like thing that I did for the tabletop community is when Roll20 came out, I used to run campaigns of 4th edition D&D for brand new players people had never played tabletop mm-hmm. before and one of my rules at the table was play whatever you want to play you know don't worry about yeah. party makeup don't worry about any of that play what you want to play and one time i ended up with four rogues <laughs> as a result of this decision um and the first thing i groaned immediately because i was like there's always one and now there's always four <laughs> there's apparently always <laughs> one. and i should say that rogue's a wonderful class uh and of course i'm one of the 12 people that supports fourth edition because it was a fantastic <laughs> system and i will stand by that but anyway so i actually got got to play uh, a game you know, with four brand new players that were all playing rogues. And it was actually a lot of fun because it, it became, you know, sort of your your classic rogue is, you know, okay, or your, I should say your your classic role for the rogue in a party is, all right, well, we, we need to find out information about this, so let's send the rogue in to sneak into the building and find out the information. And what happened was the, the rogue's duties started to become under more of like a microscope because instead of it was still let's break in and get this information because we're rogues, but now it's all of a sudden, okay, well, your job is going to be to distract the guard and your job is going to be to get the grappling hook up the wall and then you're going to climb <laughs> in and you're going to actually be the one that sneaks and then here's our exit plan. So it, it turned into essentially a heist game is really nice. what it came down to. Um, but it was interesting to see because they were doing the same thing, but just with one rogue, it would have been, okay, here's my stealth roll. I got in and out. Everything's fine. With a whole party of rogues, it became this is the thing that we're doing. That's amazing. Awesome. Well, with that, Neil, what's your number two? So number two is go seuss yourself. So <laughs> that requires a little bit more explanation. So I've got it, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> as yeah, as someone that is the father of a 2-year-old and another child on the way, literally go to your bookshelf, your local bookstore, pick up a single book from Dr. Seuss. I will use one <laughs> fish, two fish as an example, and the monsters that you can make out of that are mind-numbing as well as the NPCs that you can make. So just like a couple quick examples from One Fish, Two Fish. You've got an NPC that has seven fingers on one hand and four on the other. Unforgettable trait. You've got the Zeep, which is a giant cat-like creature that is essentially like 
two stories long. You also have the Gak, which is a creature that looks like some weird cross between an elk and a kangaroo. And then it just goes on and on. So yeah, Dr. Seuss. Who knew? He wrote monster manuals. I would want to take that campaign one step further and do a a quick one shot because it would be so difficult to do, but so much fun and and have the entire time, the entire group of players, the DM, everybody's trying to constantly rhyme with their with (sighs) with whatever they say with their PCs. And the greatest part about being it being dr seuss inspired is that if you come to a point where you don't know what word rhymes you just create a creature or a place or something and just rhyme it that that way mitch what is your number two my number two is called bless the tree god and so this would be a campaign where you play only only and i'm not saying small i'm saying tiny tiny pc races and so i mean with fifth edition that's kind of tough because i don't think there are any yet but you could you could homebrew some and so i'm talking here pixies i'm talking sprites i'm talking mouse folk and the entire campaign takes place inside of a giant old treant and so this treant is home to all of these pixies and sprites and mouse folks and now they believe that the treant is a a god that they they live on and they live in. I don't know the anatomy of treants, guys. Does anybody? I know I'm saying in, but hey, why not in? Right? Why not inside why not? of it? Why not? We don't know if they have. We we, the, uh, we don't we know. the people of the leg will fight you, the people of the arm. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's what I'm thinking. So they've sworn to protect their home. They've sworn to protect their god, the tree god. And so this campaign is protecting your home from small or tiny invaders so you can have if you're a tiny pc if you're a tiny warrior swarms swarms of angry termites is scary (laughs) swarms always makes me scared anyway especially if you're going 3.5 rules but swarms swarms of angry termites when you're a tiny pc malicious pseudo dragons you could have warring pixie factions that ride on terrible woodpeckers that come down and try to destroy the tree. I just think this would be a great, great campaign. I will have to, I do have to give credit. The original thought of this came from that amazing Adventure Time episode where Finn gets shrunk and he's running around inside of the tree with all those tree creatures that are like part of the tree. <laughs> Makes me think that like the group almost exists as like the antibodies of the tree. Yes. All right. Number one. What is your number one, Neil? All right. This one may be difficult to track with, but I think I've got it. So it is titled Sliders, anyone? The show. <laughs> it would be so difficult, but potentially so rewarding. So you allow the characters to be created from anywhere. And when I say that, I literally mean anywhere, any system, any setting, anything. Then the other players are pulled together by whatever force you dream up that makes sense to pull them all together. And then they are destined to save everything. So like a multiverse concept. So you could have like a cleric out of D&D. You could have Han Solo-ish character out of (laughs) Star Wars Edge of the Empire. You could have a slicer out of Shadowrun. And all of those characters are created in each of those systems. So you would also have a Han Solo created in D&D. And when they play in that they play in that world, they run their character based off of that character sheet. And when they move to a different one, they run their character off of that new character sheet. 
Boom. <laughs> that is an amazing storytelling idea and a mechanical nightmare. <laughs> yep. I'm just the idea yep. guy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I like that. I, I like the idea of having a smuggler from the Star Wars universe, a barbarian from the D&D universe, um, whatever it is, being thrown into a a Cthulhu adventure, <laughs> like having oh, yes. having a Wookiee running around with these tentacles coming out of the sky and trying to destroy it. It's it's very very. It's, yep. That'd be a sweet sweet idea for it to have a campaign be set with. My number one is called Zookeepers. I've had players who've wanted to run sort of like a monster hunter campaign where they go and their job is just to slay monsters. But I thought, why not take this a step further and? Why wouldn't a D&D world have a, have zoos in the large cities? I would expect they would. And in these zoos, I mean, the main attractions, like we would be like, oh, we got to go see the tiger exhibit. They're going to want to be like, oh, we want to go see the beholder exhibit. That's going to be sweet. You have a zoo in the largest city in your world. So it's the largest, the largest zoo. And your characters are all trained zookeepers that go out they're the ones that go out into the wild and they bring back exotic creatures for the zoo so they have to head out they have to set their sights on a certain creature they have to capture it alive and bring it back and so i also have this great idea of like the players getting really into this and we can you make up a a map and with each and every like new exhibit they get they get like a certain amount of money and so they're able to build onto the zoo and having like this map that they build together of this zoo and oh over here we have the the beholder cage and over here we have the the nightmare cage and it's all these different cages they build and they build these maybe realistic environments. I thought that'd be a really, really fun campaign idea for a bunch of players that are, that are more like heavy with the combat, but you can tie this like nice little role-playing twist into two it. things. One, I, I love, 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 love that idea of it's, it's almost a weird Pokemon game. At right. This point. It's let's <laughs> Pokemon let's zoo tycoon. The, the, <laughs> the the rarest stuff and bring it back in. Gotta and catch then, them all. Gotta catch them all. And then point number two is that there is a if I'm running that campaign, there is a 100 percent chance that Newman from Seinfeld is going to mess up the uh, the security around the Beholder <laughs> exhibit, and we are going to have a whole Jurassic Park situation. Yes, that's what I was thinking. Where'd all the blink dogs go? Right. Oh no. <laughs> they need like some sort of magical, yeah. Not again. <laughs> uh, so that's our top tens. We hope that you have enjoyed them. Neil, well done on your first top tens as hey. well. Good job. They thank were you. awesome. Jim, thanks so much for sharing your yes, top tens. Thank you. And for sticking around. Uh, once again, uh, you shared it last time on the the previous episode, but if our listeners want to check out your podcast, if they want to get in touch with you, tell them once again where they can do that at. Absolutely. And and thank you so much for having me on the show. Like, I, I feel like I'm, I'm on like a real podcast yes. now. So it's like, <laughs> hey, I'm official. Best way to, if you want to interact with me as I am very active on Twitter at GM Jim McClure. That's M-C-C-L-U-R-E. You can also, if you want to email me, you can send me an email at Jim at TalkingTabletop.net. That's the podcast that I run, which is Talking Tabletop, where I sit down and have candid discussion with notable personalities from the, the world of tabletop. So you can interact with me there. If you want to check out any of the one 
wonderful games that I make, uh, you can go check out thirdact.pub. That's thirdact.pub to go see. I have free games up there. I have games in development, so if you want to see any of that wonderful fun. And plugged on the last episode, I'll go ahead and plug it again. If you really want to see any of these GM concepts that I'm talking about, I would highly encourage you to go to the One Shot Podcast Network, search for Legend of the Five Rings. It's a four-part actual play series, and you will see all of these concepts that I'm talking about. You will get to see me GMing them out at the table. Perfect. And we will have all that in our show notes. We encourage you to go check out, if you haven't already had the pleasure to hear Talking Tabletop, to check out some of Jim's games, to hear them on one shot, we really do encourage you to go do that immediately because if you haven't heard it, you're missing out and you need to go and do that because as much as uh, he is is being modest, he is certainly an official podcaster and his show is fantastic. From the Dungeon Masters block to you, Jim, thank you so much for being on. We very, very much appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, that's all we have for you today on this episode of the Dungeon Masters Block. We hope that you enjoyed all three of our top tens. We know that this is a popular type of episode, so we hope that we have met your expectations, Blockheads. Neil, if they want to get in touch with us, where can they reach us at? You can email us at DungeonMasterBlock at gmail.com. And if you haven't already... You should definitely head over to iTunes and give us a five-star review so that more people can find out about the Dungeon Master's Block. Other places to find us is Stitcher and recently Google Play Music. You can follow us on Twitter at DMS underscore block. That's at DMS block. You can go over to Facebook and search Dungeon Master's Block. And then you can hit the little thumbs up button so you can like our Facebook page. If you go and do either of those two options, you will get tons of updates about the show D&D goodness and D&D memes for days. We have a Patreon member shout-out of the week, and this week's Patreon member shout-out goes to... Shell Ulrich! Yeah, Yeah, Shell is a gold dragon. Uh Ooh, shiny gold Shell, the gold dragon. Watch watch out! (laughs) So, Shell, we hope that you join us for a Google Hangout very, very soon. But thank you for your support. Thank you so much. But that's all we have for you today on the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we come to talk about the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the egos of all other people at the table. Avita saying, keep on Dungeon Mastering. Goodbye.